Hi, I'm Alex Mozed. You're here on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us this evening, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Uh, we have a few interesting topics today to go over. First one is Blackstone. Blackstone's getting into the dating game. They're buying Bumble for $3 billion. The Bumble owner, which is this magic lab thing. I think there is some kind of governance kookiness going on. There's some kind of harassment investigations going on. seems like an opportunistic uh, plan to buy the company. Um, and, uh, and the founder and CEO will, will, will now kind of remain on um, after the acquisition. A couple interesting things with this. Well, $3 billion is a lot of money. It's rumored that their revenue is around uh, $500 million. So, you know, it's a healthy uh, 6x revenue multiple, roughly. Um, but Blackstone is a private equity firm. They have about $545 million under management, $545 billion uh, under management. I don't know if they are the biggest private equity, but they're easily one of the biggest private equity firms. I mean, they they and, and Steve Schwartzman, um, one of the founders of Blackstone, they are animals in a great way. Um, it, it's really an amazing firm. And I've had the pleasure of sitting in the room with Steve a couple times. And one things, one of the things that Steve um, has said is that he just doesn't understand all the tech valuations and the tech, these tech companies that are losing a bunch of money. And he doesn't understand how to value them. Here is the thing with Bumble is these companies, these platforms actually make a lot of money. And that's probably why that they're okay to buy them because Steve and the team underneath Steve can get their, can wrap, wrap their minds around the economics of a business like this. Uh, so if we look at match groups, do they just announce their quarterly earnings last week? Their stock did okay in terms of what the analysts expected. But in Q3, they did about $540 million in revenue. Uh, and now this is between Match and Tinder. I believe Tinder is doing at least 50% of this. It might be close to three, uh, might be close to three quarters of this. Um, Tinder is a very, very, very big part of Match Group. If you just think about, you know, um, where all of the growth is in mobile versus a website, which is really where, where Match made its name. Their bottom line here is basically $150 million in Q3. The business makes a lot of money. It's wildly profitable. Similarly, I think Bumble being kind of the, the number two, uh, that is the idea behind this acquisition that, hey, this is a profitable platform type of model. Um, IAC is the one that actually had owned Match, had owned Tinder, um, had rolled all these things together. They actually kind of like incubated Tinder um, in, in their labs group many, many years ago. Barry Diller heads up IAC. Barry Diller understands platforms fantastically well. Barry Diller basically controls Expedia, has transitioned into a marketplace over the past few years. They also uh, have done a home services roll-up with Angie's List and Home Advisor and most recently Handy. Barry Diller, IAC, understand the platforms very well. They've kind of spun out match uh, over the past year or so, I believe. So they had a strong earnings result, right? But you can use this earnings 
uh, as a comparable to what we're seeing with Bumble. So now if you look at the past nine months for Match, it's $1.5 billion in revenue and it's $400 million in profit. Match Group is valued at about $20 billion. Okay. That's about a 10x revenue multiple. So it's kind of interesting, right? If I don't think Bumble is getting the same premium that Tinder and Match are getting. Makes sense. But it's still strong, should be a profitable business. Uh, this information article also highlights that. Um, but yeah, makes sense why private equity, particularly Blackstone, is able to get their, their arms or their minds around uh, this business model, where a lot of other tech platform models, they're just not able to bridge that gap because they're not making money. Um, Steve Schwartzman just came out with a new book called What It Takes. I'm actually just about to read this. I've heard it's very, very good. Um, and Steve, another interesting story, the Business Roundtable, uh, which has 190, it's like the who's who of all the CEOs in, in, the, in the business world, um, recently had a vote, you probably heard about this, where they changed the purpose of the corporation, right? The purpose of the cor corporation previously was to serve its shareholders, and um, they recently updated that language to say the purpose of a corporation is to serve its employees, its customers, its kind of uh, community, its society, the environment maybe might be in there, and shareholders. So and shareholders was at the end. And they added in maybe four other terms. Don't quote me exactly on the terms, but you get the idea, right? That a business is here to serve more than just the shareholders. And it was all and, and, and. And this was one of the conversations at the New York Times Dealbook Conference last week, where they had Ginny Rometty, the CEO of IBM, and, this, and, and Alex, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, who were both kind of the co-chairs of the business roundtable, who were the champions of updating this language around the purpose of a corporation. And they were on stage with Andrew Sorkin. And so they brought up an interesting story about our friend Steve Schwartzman. Steve Schwartzman surprise, surprise, is also in the business roundtable. And so um, they said that if they had 190 members, roughly like 185 of them voted yes to, uh, to update this language. Well, Steve was one of the five holdouts. And, uh, and so they were talking, Andrew brought up, okay, here's what, why, what was Steve's issue? Why did Steve hold out from this? And, he's, and what they said is, Steve was saying, look, of course, every corporation is here to do all of these other things. Serve its employees, serve its customers, serve the community, serve society. And Steve was saying, if I want to serve ultimately shareholders in the best way possible and to provide the most returns to my shareholders, I have to do all these other things. Otherwise, my company won't be successful and I can't deliver on my purpose of serving shareholders. And what he was saying is, I have a hard enough job just doing that one thing and doing that well. How am I supposed to balance the priorities of five now different purposes? Because they updated it, right? Or they wanted to update it at this point. How am I supposed to understand how to prioritize all these things? I can try to, how am I, I'm, I'm struggling to only do one well. How am I supposed to do five well? And he just couldn't, he just couldn't get there. So he voted no. To update the language. And so then uh, Andrew was asking 
uh, Ginny and Alex, what their response was to Steve. Um, what was their counter argument? And they didn't have one. They basically just sidestepped the question, which these Fortune 100 CEOs are very good at doing and kind of made a, a related point that they tried to say that it answered his question, but it didn't really answer his question because they didn't have a good response. And I tend to agree with Steve. It's very difficult to just, you know, focus is the key for every executive. And I don't think Steve's point was to say that a business shouldn't be doing these other things. I think his point was around how do you execute and execute effectively? And when you lose that focus to execute, well, then you don't execute on anything well. Um, I think he's got a valid point. So uh, anyway, Steve Schwartzman does not like to invest in tech companies unless he can understand how they make money and uh, does not agree with the business roundtable updated language and has a great new book out called What It Takes. Um, and I have no, no bargain. No, no, I have no reason to promote Steve other than I just think he's uh, amazing and, and really like what he's done. Let's look at Apple. So today's Veterans Day. I want to give a uh, you know heartfelt thank you for the service to all of our vets, our active military uh, members, and all of our vets for serving the country uh, day in and day out. And today on Veterans Day, well, actually, I guess last week this was announced. Uh, Apple announced that the VA, you can now get your Apple Health uh, to sync with the VA. Uh, the Veterans Affairs Department, which has over 9 million vets um, and their family members that go to the VA. The VA is basically, I think it's the largest hospital in the country, for those of you who don't know what it is. And um, it's, a, it's a national healthcare provider, and they have locations all over the United States. And um, <clears throat> so now all of those 9 million uh, um, patients can now have their health records e easily accessible through Apple Health. Really interesting, right? And so Apple has this page on their site. This is speaking to the healthcare provider about why they should integrate with Apple Health. Engage your patients in their own health. You can kind of see here, right? Like they can kind of dig into all their different data um, from the iPhone. Very interesting. Complement your patient portal so you can log into the health records using the same login information as like in this case, Cedar Sinai's um, patient login credentials, also very interesting. And um, they said they have hundreds of institutions that have already signed up with Apple Health, uh, providers that have signed up with Apple Health. So um, what they have been less transparent on, and if you remember a few weeks ago, we spoke about Don Rucker uh, from the Department of Health and uh, Human Services, like HHS. Um, that he was very pro letting Allscripts, the EMR company, share and, and integrate health records to be shared with Apple Health. Despite the AMA, the American Medical Association was vehemently against this and said that there is patient and privacy concerns. What happens if your data, your electronic health record is now in Apple Health? What other third parties can get access to that information? Historically, the way Apple has run this is to say, you as the patient uh, using Apple Health have the ability to provide app by app permission uh, for which apps can get access to your health information and, and which information in your health record. So it's very specific. 
it's on a case by case basis. Um, but basically, you give that that um, all those capabilities to the patient, and that no third party app can just willy nilly get access to your health records. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way I'm sure Apple has sold these healthcare providers on the way it will continue to be. But this has very, very huge um, implications. And we just saw, I think last week also, that Google bought Fitbit or, or has put in, a, you know, uh, or is trying to buy Fitbit, put in an offer to buy Fit, Fitbit. It hasn't closed um, or been fully approved yet, but it seems pretty likely like they're going to acquire them. And so that's Google's mechanism to combat the Apple Watch, uh, which is this, which is now giving Apple um, and now Google the patient user generated data about your health, right? It's really kind of tying that in. And I think when you look at putting these two data sets together, if I can put together your user generated kind of always on, always monitoring data about the individual, and I can now pair that information up with your health record. Now that gets very interesting because if you talk to a lot of tech startups in the in the uh, healthcare space, just looking at the health record alone doesn't solve everything that you need. I th- I think a lot of them, some some tech startups will poo-poo what comes out of the 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 health record, or that a lot of the information you know half the information is correct, half the information is incorrect. What do you look at? Um, are you looking at the wrong information or the right information? Point is. Just having the health record doesn't solve all of your data needs. Um, a lot of it is about kind of putting multiple data sets together and then using AI and machine learning to then draw inferences uh, between those two data sets. Or the more data sets that you can pull in from different places, um, the better, right? So, and then you can mash all that up and then try and learn what's real or, or what you should actually be focused on or concerned about. That's where this gets really interesting with the Apple Watch with the health record, Apple putting its own basically proprietary data on you together with the health record, the standard data, right, that you get in your physical. Google clearly seeing that as um, a threat and them needing that in their arsenal, buying Fitbit. Now, I think the question is, though, on who pays for all this stuff. Um, So the idea is that you can make apps and you can open up this data to third-party developers, right? I and more bullish on the physician spending money, well, wanting to spend money. How the physician spends the money is a whole other thing. Is it the insurance company, the payer, or the actual physician? But I think how now Apple Health can leverage these two data sets and the fact that the um, patient can say, yes, I'm okay to sharing this, and then bring that back into the hospital and now enable the physician to say, hey, um, this, is, this is literally what I do every day, right? What apps would I want to use? What apps could be lev- using Apple Health to provide better insights, to provide um, better software or workflow software for me in my practice, to help clean up the data or the bad data in the health record, for example, and scrub that out, clean it up. Um, I think the physician is going to see a huge amount of uh, really practical utility-based value coming out of apps and software and new tech startups in the healthcare space, innovating on the data that Apple Health is able to unlock. 
I think patients will see some of it, but patients aren't experts. And I don't think patients are going to want to spend a huge amount of money. I think some patients will certainly be spending decent money on apps and already are in the health space. But I think from from a standpoint of where could you open up a whole new swath of kind of app ecosystem dollars and 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 developers i think down to the physician that's practicing day in and day out in a hospital um, and really has been in a vacuum they've been having to use these old uh, uh epic cerner ehr systems that certainly don't meet all their needs and i think where that ecosystem of app developers is going to be a huge boon to the industry is down to the physician Doing what Apple's doing on the consumer side is key to that, uh, but this will be really interesting to see how Apple brings us full circle back into the physician. Speaking of full circle, we're going to come back to Amazon in, in a second, um, but Zillow. So Zillow is basically, we've spoken in the past about how Zillow has rolled out this thing called offers. Zillow... Um, Zillow has been a platform company through and through growing up connecting like agents and brokers with consumers. um, And that's a marketplace. Zillow offers is, is was really brought about um, by another linear company that was in the uh, home or still is in the, in the home called open door, which buys homes and then does a little bit of work to them and then flips them. And it's using data and AI to figure out, Oh, this home's a great deal. Let me buy it. If I can flip this thing in 30 or 60 days, we're going to make a nice penny on this. Um, Open Door is worth a few billion dollars. Zillow's approach was to try and build this out internally, build this new business model out on their own called Zillow Offers. Redfin, the Zillow, smaller Zillow competitor, decided to partner with Open Door, just as a point of reference. This article... um, says Zillow's stock is up over 12%. This was uh, towards the end of last week. And um, rapid expansion of Zillow offers. You can see that here. So Zillow's doing the same thing. This home is owned by Zillow. You see this little sign here, right? Um, So they're still using, looks like a, a broker. But so what they're doing is, so this says Zillow's betting the future on directly buying and selling homes and is rapidly expanding the service going from 21 markets to 26 by mid-2020. Uh, they brought in $385 million in revenue in the past quarter, uh, up 55% from the second quarter, right? So that means that they were doing under $200 million in revenue for uh, Zillow Homes, Zillow Offers is what it's called, um, in Q2. So this is quarter-to-quarter growth, not uh, yearly quarter over quarter growth. They're losing money, so they lost $88 million on this. But again, tech platforms for for mo you know, by and large, are valued based on growth. Um, and so this is amazing growth. And so the company sold 1,200 homes and purchased 2,300 homes. So they sold 1,200 homes in three months. That's a lot of homes, folks. And they purchased 2,300. And so more than 80,000 homeowners requested an offer from Zillow. So when you go to Zillow and you're a homeowner, 
they'll give you a little button if they like your home and if they think they have a good chance of giving you a good deal that you'll accept and that they think they can make money on, they'll give you an offer without knowing if you're looking to sell your home or not. But they'll say, hey, John, I'll buy your home for this amount of money, $500,000. You want it? Great, because I'll give you that like right now. And um, you can make the decision. And so they are, they have the power of the platform this is a great example about platform moving into linear. Many times you see linear business move into platform or certainly from the, the tech linear companies, Amazon being one of the best examples. Now you're seeing platform tech company move into linear. Um, and this really kind of, this hybrid approach being key for them. So this is a great example. I love what they're doing. They're really going all in on this and um, power to them. You know, I think they're really giving open door a run for its money. So very interesting to see. Um, Amazon. It's holiday season. And look what I got in the mail. At our office. Holiday together. 2019 gift guide fashion. Okay. It's a catalog. Amazon sending out catalogs. I mean... I've spent zero time looking at the catalog, but they're sending out catalogs. It just really, it, it, it's kind of funny in the sense that, right, it all comes full circle, right? Um, everyone was bashing on the Macy's of the world, right? Oh, you guys are so old and pathetic. You're sending out catalogs. Like who sends out catalogs, right? Um, and sure enough, now Amazon is sending out catalogs. Um, and Amazon is opening up retail stores and all these kinds of things. I think the reason why they can do these tra more traditional tactics is because they have the power of the marketplace behind them. It's because 58% of the stuff you buy on Amazon is actually from a third-party seller. All these products in the catalog are going to be you know, owned and, and sold and, and resold by Amazon. That's the 1P you know, reseller part of their business. Um, but they are deploying more traditional tactics, which still can work. Uh, but the business model that they have, where they have part platform and part reseller, is able to support uh, these more traditional tactics. So if you're just doing the traditional tactics and you're just doing e-commerce and you're just at a continued reseller, then the catalog approach isn't going to let you beat earnings uh, or be loved by Wall Street or just have a viable, defensible, high growth business, right? Um, you need that network effect, that supply side network effect, uh, as we've seen come into play so, so, so many times on this show. Um, so last point here, uh, maybe a week ago, we were talking about that if you are a traditional large enterprise, you have a lot of untapped advantages. And if you want to tap into those things and spin out a separate platform business, um, you need autonomy. And <clears throat> if you're going to try and do this within your four walls, Walmart Marketplace in 2009, they tried to do this internally. Walmart Marketplace failed. Why did it fail? Simply because Walmart Marketplace was called Walmart Marketplace. Because that signified how close that new initiative was to Walmart. And so we have many examples. We've written extensively about this, but a couple that that really exemplified this point 
in spades is, so when you were buying something on Walmart Marketplace, back 2009, they had third-party sellers. But all the inventory you viewed in Walmart Marketplace, it wasn't commingled with traditional Walmart inventory. These were two separate buying experiences, two separate product catalogs. So Walmart's product catalog wasn't in the marketplace. It was purely third-party seller inventory. And then right when you were about to check out, Walmart and all of their brilliance back then, 10 years ago, gave you a nice little pop-up. And the pop-up said, oh, by the way, these aren't sold by Walmart. These are sold by our partners. So basically, if something goes wrong, um, just so you know, this doesn't really fit all of our same kind of uh, warranty and, and, and return policies and all these kinds of things. So good luck. Have fun. Hope you buy it. How many people do you think actually ended up buying after they see that pop up? Like no one. Um, that was point number one. Point number two is that's on the customer side, on the, on the producer side, on the seller side, you had to go through Walmart's traditional procurement department, which, as you can imagine, is not a friendly or quick or painless experience. Quite the opposite, actually. So if you're a third party seller, you could go sign up on Amazon and start selling on Amazon in like 10 minutes. Um, or you could try and go through weeks and weeks of a very arduous process on Walmart. And oh, by the way, Amazon in 2009 was probably doing 100x the volume of Walmart. So why bother? Um, those are just a couple examples, but it just goes to show you when, when this new fledgling business model is so new and raw, it needs a lot of separation from the core business. And you probably don't even want the brand associated with it at all in the very early stages, which is what I'm about to talk about. Rapid business model validation. And so when you want to prove the business model, in Walmart's case, hey, we should open up our e-commerce to third-party sellers. We should allow other third-party sellers to post inventory on our website that we don't have in our warehouse. um, And we should allow them to put up products to post and list prices. Um, and we need to do this. And this is a viable business model. And so um, in the early days when, when you know, Walmart's trying to prove this and, and say, hey, we need to make a lot of investments in this, or, or for that matter, um, any traditional enterprise that's entertaining the idea of true business model innovation and having a separate business uh, exists outside of their core enterprise, how do you validate that? How do you get buy-in um, at the executive level, possibly at the board level if needed? Very quickly. Um, and so the key is this. The key is to not write any code, <laughs> like zero code. Um, and what you want to do is say, how could I not get an MVP, right? This is so far earlier than MVP. This is saying, how can I find a consumer and a producer? How can I show to a high likelihood of confidence um, that these two users want to exchange value with one another, right? And that's what we call the core transaction. Can I find a consumer? Can I find a producer? Can I figure out how they want to uh, interact with one another? And can I do that? Can I do that like five times? Um, and can I do that in a couple of weeks? And so how would you go about doing that? And, and the idea is, how could you use off-the-shelf tools, um, different SaaS products that are out there to go find some consumers, could be business customers, could be kind of uh, regular consumers, and then find some producers um, in a marketplace model that would be, uh, let's say, in B2B distribution where we do a lot of work. That would be small mom-and-pop third-party distributors, um, 
maybe manufacturers, but mostly you want to focus on the highly fragmented supply first, not the large suppliers, which are going to have a lot of rules, a lot of uh, requirements before they do any business with you. But um, how could you get uh, some initial supply? How could you get some initial demand and put these two things together? And so, um, and then really force yourself to say, I want to stand this up in a month, no more than a month. And the idea is to fail fast, um, to not write any code, and to uh, drive some traffic to go and put this stuff together. This works for uh, pretty much all the platform types, except for development platforms. It's very hard to do an initial core transaction on a development platform. That That's a different path. Um, content platforms, depending upon the, the content format, may not always fit this mold. Social networks may not always fit this mold. It depends on the interaction model. Um, but generally, you can, even communication platforms, right? Like you can get people talking or communicating. Let's go back to the marketplace example. Um, can you find some customers? That want to buy stuff. Can you throw up uh, a lot of manual hacks, unscalable tactics, where maybe you find some demand, people want to buy something from you, and then you got to go call people up and source that stuff and track them down and say, hey, I've got an order. Do you want to fulfill this order? But the point is this, that that sounds like a really miserable experience. That is not seamless. That is not quick. It's not really... It doesn't seem like it's driving a lot of value, but if you found, um, I'm not talking uh, triple digit figures of, of transactions here, but if you can do a single double digit amount of transactions in a very clunky, arduous fashion, it's not too difficult to make the assumption that if you were then to invest in technology, if you were then to invest in actually building software, hiring some engineers, doing some real sales and marketing, putting a real brand together for this business. And what you're doing is just making that core transaction a lot more seamless, a lot quicker, a lot easier for the customer to come back again or for the customer to transact initially, right? But if you've been able to find customers um, at that point in the life cycle, what you're trying to do, right? Like the business model might make sense, but what you're trying to gauge is, is the timing right for this business opportunity? And if if you can show that these really clunky manual hacks are actually letting you do core transactions, which by definition means you technically have a platform business going, it's just not scalable, right? But technically, you stood up a platform in a week. Then you say, you know what? The timing is actually pretty good because I've found customers that are using this more than just one. And, um, you know, there might be something here. Let's go a step deeper on that. Uh, I, my, my friends over at Handy, um, they blurbed the book, Oshin blurbed the book, the founder, co-founder and CEO and uh, Umang's co-founder and COO. One of the things that they spoke to me about when they first started Handy, which really stuck to me, um, they started Handy on a whiteboard. They had a landing page. You could say, I need my home cleaned or I need a plumber. And then you could book it. And they would let you book it, say, a week out, right? Um, But when you think about that experience, they aren't automatically confirming with the producer, with the the home cleaner or the plumber, 
right then. When you book it as a customer, you're booking it a week out. And they probably, maybe they started this business, maybe not 10 years ago, but early 2010s, right? Um, And the customer expectation at that point in time was fine with that. And they were able to build significant traction with that amount of turnaround time, with that either seamless or, or not so seamless of an experience. As the market and as the industry grew, consumer expectations also grew. So if you were to try and build a competitive home services marketplace and you are going to let someone book for home cleaning, home cleaning, but the soonest you can deliver that service is in seven days and you try to launch that business today, no one's going to book with you. And your economics probably will also not be uh, affordable uh, either. You're not hitting them on convenience. You're not hitting them on the economics. You've lost the network effect. You can't get the supply side or the demand side network effect because the market is too mature. If you were to just build this from scratch in this scenario. But if you are able to now rewind the clock and say, well, that was essentially exactly what I'm talking about, where they put up some off the shelf tools. That wasn't a custom website. It was a landing page and you get to book a, a date and say, hey, I want someone to come clean my house in a week. Okay, great. Here's the price. And then it was their job to make a bunch of calls on the back end and try and fill that and get a bunch of uh, um, producers and, and suppliers and contractors that could do that job. Okay, that's what Handy was doing for many, many years. And then all they were doing was saying, okay, now we can do it in five days. Now we can do it in four days. Okay, now we can do it in two days. And then next day, um, was, I think has been the recent kind of holy grail for them to get to. Um, but if you are, again, able to stand up a platform, do manual hacks, do it in a very clunky way with no custom code written, very minimal investment, and you're able to do core transactions like I'm talking about, that's a pretty good indicator that the market is raw enough or there is, there is a need <clears throat> and you're able to find customers where their expectation is not so advanced that you would need to say, go buy a company because that company has already built the technology and we already has some network effects going for it. Um, they either hit on the convenience factor or the economics or pricing factor of the equation or, or the product catalog factor of the equation. But, uh, but yeah, if you're not finding anyone and those hacks don't work for you, then maybe the opportunity is still correct, but you're too late to the game because consumer expectation is now too advanced. And maybe you have to now go look at doing some acquisitions. Um, so, you know, I'd say that's kind of the, the primer. We're going to go deeper on what these different hacks could look like when you look at different types of platforms, right? So the hacks for a product marketplace would be different than a service marketplace, would be different than, say, an investment platform or a lending marketplace um, or a communication platform, right? But all these types of hacks exist. It's really just a matter of figuring out um, if you're, if, if the opportunity you've defined is matching with the timing of the industry or the market you're trying to go after. And that's pretty much the definition of product market fit, by the way, right? Have I found that my product and my business model resonates and this thing is working in the market? So it's very raw and it's very controlled and it's, and the sample size is very small. But if you want to then take that and make the argument to the higher-ups at a traditional enterprise, build a business model around that, put all the regular business plan and financials around that package, and you say, okay, 
give me a shot. Let me go try and build this business. Let me try and go and scale and build these teams out and all the things I was talking about. Um, that's a compelling argument to also try and get autonomy because that's really the, the crux of what you need to go and actually execute appropriately and try out a bunch of tactics, to try and scale this business, many of which are going to fail, but you want to fail fast. And you don't want the traditional enterprise to get the blowback when the nine things that you try fail, but one works, right? You need that flexibility and kind of that shield back to the core business so that you can um, actually have the full scope of options in front of you when you are trying to find true product market fit. Uh, so that's it for today on Winner Take All. More on that topic as we dig deeper. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you tomorrow.